you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 151. Deuteronomy 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Well, school started this week, if it hadn't already started for you already. And so as it did, our family hit another milestone. Uh, We took Titus for his first day of school on Friday. Now, it's only half day 4K, but it's a big change for everyone. Titus himself, he's very excited about uh, going to school. I think he's going to do well. He makes friends pretty easily. He said that was his main goal in all this. (laughs) So, uh, and he likes to learn. So, uh, and also 4K is a lot of fun. So I want Titus to have fun, but... Uh, As we've been talking about it, I also have been wanting him to understand that learning takes effort. At some point, I know that he's going to come up against something that isn't exactly fun, but he's still going to need to do it. It's going to take discipline to push through those moments. So I'm kind of, even as we're trying to, you know, like enjoy the fun that he's having, we're also trying to help prepare him for that. Learning takes effort. You all know this. It would be nice, I dreamed in college, of just laying my head down on a book and having the information just seep right in. It would have been so nice, but that is not the way education works. You only get the blessing from what you're taught when you apply yourself to learning it and putting it into practice. You have to be present to learn, but it takes more than just presence. It takes desire. Desire fuels a heart to make it willing and eager to learn. Desire is what makes a person put the effort it takes to learn into it. It makes a person teachable. It's the difference between mere attendance and true learning. If the book of Deuteronomy were a school, we would say that its main goal would be to teach us all about holiness. Holiness is the goal of Deuteronomy. We're meant to come to it to learn to be holy. In this way, the book of Deuteronomy points us forward to Christ, since we quickly realize from the school of the law that we fall short of its holy standard. Now, last year, we made our way through the first five chapters of this book in which Moses had gathered together the nation of Israel to prepare them to enter the promised land. If we think about when this book is occurring, it is occurring right on the cusp of the nation of Israel entering into the promised land with Joshua. This is the second generation from the Exodus, the sons and the daughters of those who were enslaved in Egypt who God redeemed and brought out, but who ultimately did not enter the promised land because they rebelled against the Lord and refused to go in because they were afraid of the Canaanites. So now, at this point, Moses himself is about to die. God had forbidden him from entering the land because of the way he acted at Meribah. But before he does, he is preparing the nation for success. He's preaching and teaching from the law to equip them to thrive in the land. So uh, Deuteronomy is often called, it's Deuteronomy, the word, if we break that down, means second law. It's really not what Deuteronomy is. It is Moses explaining, teaching, preaching the law to God's people, reiterating to them why they need to devote themselves to it, explaining to them on a very workman's level how they're to put this into practice. 
So as Moses has done this, it's been, it's been almost a year since we were here. So just to bring you back up to speed, Moses has been recounting a lot of the history that has led up to this point. As he has done, he has shown time and time again God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. He has recounted to them the ten words that the Lord spoke to the people at Sinai. And now he's about to teach them the rest of what the Lord had to say to him on the mountain, starting with the heart of God's command, which Jesus in Matthew 22 calls the great and first command, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now we will get into that command next week. That is one we are we are I want you to understand as we step into Deuteronomy 6, we are stepping into what is maybe arguably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. So I want you to to brace yourselves a little. We are going to take a deep dive in chapter 6, but it is very essential because this chapter has a lot to say to us about not just how we are to think about the Lord, but also how we are to actually have a relationship with him. This is, this is an absolutely essential chapter for us. We're going to take our dear sweet time working our way through this. There's other parts of Deuteronomy we're going to move through quickly, but we are going to make sure that we get every bit of goodness out of this chapter uh, as we study it together. So that will be in the next couple of weeks as we're unpacking this, what's going on. As we start here, we find, I find that it's very significant as Moses is moving his way to present us with the great commandment. He does so by urging us to dedicate ourselves to learning, to come and learn, to receive this teaching, to greatly desire and obey this command. He means for us to commit ourselves to learning the way of holiness so that we may enjoy a vibrant relationship with holy God, just as we were created to do. That is the goal of Deuteronomy 6. So let's begin by reading our passage. If I can, please stand with me as I read our passage this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt, he set them apart. He called them out to be his holy people. So also he has called believers out of sin and the world to be his holy people. Oswald Chambers has correctly observed, God has only one intended destiny for mankind, holiness. His only goal is to produce saints. God is not some eternal blessing machine for people to use, and he did not come to save us out of pity. He came to save us because he created us to be holy. So having been set apart by God for holiness... 
God's people must learn to live in that way, to live holiness out. Although the Bible teaches us that this holiness is something we receive by grace through faith in Christ, it also teaches us that we're meant to live and grow in active pursuit of it. We are not, we are not wholly passive in our growth and holiness, in our growth and godliness. By grace, Christ makes us righteous, and by grace, we live and grow in pursuit of this. So even as we have received holiness from Christ, we learn to walk in holiness. And this is why disciples of Christ are called to show themselves as his disciples through obedience to his commands. Just as it is in the nature of light to shine, so it is in the nature of God's holy people to be holy. Holiness does as holiness is. These verses, as I've said, are leading to the great commandment. They are called to listen, to learn, and to do. So that brings us to really our main point, our main idea this morning. Listen and learn the Lord's command. Listen and learn the way of holiness. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack four reasons why we are called to learn the way of holiness. First, we're going to see that we're called to learn so that we may do. Called to action. Second, we will see that we are, we are called to learn so that we may thrive, or so we may fear. I got ahead of myself there. Third, we're called to learn that we may thrive. And fourth, we're called to learn so that we may actually teach. So let's begin with our first point, which is learning that we may do. Learning, as I've already said, takes effort. Students will, take, will stay up all night cramming so they can pass a test sometimes out of necessity, but also sometimes because it's just easier to just run through the information a couple times the night before rather than steadily studying it throughout the semester. While it may help you get the grade, cramming before a test isn't really an effective way to learn. It might help you pass the class, but it won't really seat that information way down so that you can use it later on, which, if we're all really honest, is the whole point of taking a class in the first place. Learning the right way takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes study. But that doesn't mean learning has to be a drudgery. Learning can actually be quite fun, and I have always found that it is easy to learn what you value. When you know you're going to use something, when you know that you're learning something valuable, something you're interested in, something that's going to equip you to do something that you really want to do or really need to do, well, it's just easier to put that kind of effort into learning it. I used to drive my math teachers absolutely crazy because I was always asking them, well, how can I use this algebraic equation in my everyday life? It was, was it a stall tactic? Yeah, it was a stall tactic. But, but then again, I also found it was easier to learn what they were teaching me if I had an end goal in mind, if I realized, ah, this is going to help me down the line if I learn this concept. It's not just something I have to do. It's something that's going to equip me for something. I learned better when I knew what, why I needed it. When it comes to the law of God, when it comes to the book of Deuteronomy, I suppose you might find yourself asking a similar question. Why is it worth spending time learning this? Why is it worth talking about the law in the first place? Sometimes it can be a real struggle to get through these statutes and precepts, especially when we consider that Christ has set us free from the demands of the law. Well, there are many reasons, 
more than I have time to trace out for you here. For one, the law teaches us about the heart of God and the standard of holiness. Second, the law equips us to see how far short we fall of that standard of holiness. Third, it points us to Christ who has fulfilled the law through his righteous obedience and who has delivered us from its condemnation by his death and resurrection. And fourth, the law is meant to teach us about the connection between loving God and doing his commands. And this is really what I want to look at with you at this, with that in particular in this first point. God means for us to learn and listen to his instruction so that we may live in obedience to his commands. The commands of God are not just heady precepts and concepts. They are binding on our lives. They are meant to be done. They are meant to instruct us in the way of holy living so that we can live lives of holiness. So the law is meant to be practical. It has value for your everyday life, starting with this greatest command. As Moses begins here in chapter 6, we find him driving that key concept home for us, speaking to the nation and all who were to come after them, saying, now this is the commandment. Notice that singular. This is the commandment. And then he expands that out. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So like a good teacher, we have Moses here motivating his students to learn what he's about to say to them by presenting them with the authority by which he's saying it and the purpose for which they are to receive it. He says, this is the commandment the Lord God gave me and commanded me to teach you that, that's a purpose clause, so that you may do them. So we have the authority of the commandment. It is from the Lord, given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai when the Lord met with him and spoke to the whole assembly. These are not Moses' words. These are not Moses' wise sayings. This is God's command himself. He's telling his people what to do. Then we have the instruction of the Lord to Moses, telling him to teach these things to the people. So just as Jesus spent time with his disciples, teaching them, equipping them, preparing them, training them, so also God spent time with Moses, equipping him to teach the people these statutes and these rules. And then we have the result or the purpose of this command. God gave Moses these commands, commissioned him to go and teach the people so that they would go do them. These aren't just meant to be heady theological concepts. They aren't empty philosophies. They are truth and instruction for life. Just as God instructed Moses to teach these commands to the people, so he is commanding the people through Moses to put these things into practice. Now, they they say that rules are meant to be broken. Well, not these rules. These are rules with weight. They carry consequences. They're meant to be heard, and they're meant to be carried out. These words come with a blessing and a curse. In Deuteronomy 11, we see that there's a blessing for those who obey them and a curse for for those who do not obey them but turn aside. So God's commands are not arbitrary, nor are they optional. In Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus dispels the idea that he came to abolish the law or the prophets. 
Instead, he says he came to fulfill them. And consequently, he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in order to make sense of Jesus' work on the cross, in order to understand the why of the cross and the how of the cross, we need to understand the law and what it commands us to do. While the law lacks the ability to justify us, it accomplishes its purpose by making us to see and understand what it means to say that God is holy and that he calls his people to be holy as he himself is holy. While men grope around in the darkness of sin with darkened minds and hardened hearts, the commands of God shine out brightly into that darkness so that we can see the problem of sin and so that we can savor the true glory of God and understand our need for a Savior to restore us to have a right relationship with Him. I'm afraid that there are many today who in an effort to convince themselves that they are good with God have taken scissors to the law and cut out space to try and have God and other things as well. While agreeing that it's wrong to murder, they commit it against the most helpless and innocent, enabling the deaths of millions. While saying it is wrong to steal, they use others to their own advantage and prioritize their own needs over others. While declaring that God is love, they pervert love to be lust and to promote wicked desire. Friends, God's commands are meant to be done. God commanded Moses to teach the people these things so that they would do them. Having received grace and redemption in Christ Jesus, we also are called to hear and listen and do his commands. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice how Jesus connects love to doing. If we love God, if we love his Son, then we will and we must dutifully and eagerly seek to know him and seek to follow him. Good sons are obedient sons. Good servants are obedient servants who run to their master's call, not because they want to, they, they somehow need to earn his favor, but because we have actually received his favor. He has loved us with an everlasting love. And so it is only fitting that we ourselves should love him as he has loved us. His zeal for us becomes our zeal for him, and it becomes our pleasure to do what he commands us to do. The work of God's love and salvation is meant to work itself out in us, bearing the fruit of holiness and obedience. As long as we view God's law as just a mere list of don't do this and do this. That's something we just have to abide by, something that maybe we can fudge when it suits us. It will always be a burden to us. We will look at God as a hateful taskmaster, but that is not the purpose of the law. If we allow that to be a list of do's and don'ts only, we will fight to see God's commands and his law and its relevance for our everyday life. We will struggle to study it It will not seem to be a treasure to us. But when we see that the purpose of the law and the commands of the Lord are meant to fuel our love, 
to direct us in the way of holiness, to guide us and to reflect the heart of God to us, then his commands will be sweet in our mouths and they will be energy for our hearts. So we must learn the commands of God so that we may put them into practice, to do them. Second, we need to learn so that we may fear. Learn so that you may fear. Is it better to be loved or to be feared? What do you think? Well, the Renaissance philosopher Machiavelli once answered that it was better to be feared than to be loved if you cannot have both. He argued that fear is much safer than love. He said that the bonds of love are easily broken by men at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a dread of punishment which never fails. Ah, that's pretty insightful stuff, right? I mean, Machiavelli has been quoted for a long time. He's got something there. I think from the standpoint of human governance, I'd say that he's probably right. But from the standpoint of godliness, this concept comes far short. There is no fear of the Lord where there is no love for the Lord. There is no love for God where there is no fear of God. Let me explain what I mean. Fear, when I say the word fear, we recognize that's a complex term. It's a complex word. It has many different meanings. When my plumber tells me he's afraid he has bad news about my pipes, it makes me sad, but it doesn't strike terror into me the way that you would feel if someone was threatening you with a knife or if you were standing face to face with an angry grizzly bear. There is fear like that. Then there's fear that is a kind of anxiety, a fear of the future. There is a crippling fear that controls and limits what we're able to do. None of that is meant to describe the sort of fear of God that the Bible commends to us. When it comes to fearing God, the way Moses talks about here, we're talking about a fear that is really best understood and described as a deep reverence. It is a fear that is born out of knowing God, and it is a fear that is born out of a love for God. It is a fear that restrains us from violating his commands. It is a fear that protects us from coming flippantly into his presence. It is a fear that gives depth to worship and awe to the soul. It is not the fear of demons. James tells us that the demons believe God, they believe there is a God, and they shudder. The demons were the ones in, when, when Jesus was doing his ministry, which were saying to Jesus, you are the son of God. What have you to do with me? They're, they're afraid. They realized that they were in the presence of the Son of God. The fear of the demons is a fear of judgment. They know the holiness of God. They know the rage of his wrath. They know what it really means to say that God is holy, and they know they are destined for judgment. But they do not fear God so as to obey him, and they do not love him. They hate him and they despise his glory. Do you see how there's a difference between a fear that loves God and a fear that hates God? The fear of the Lord, which God means for us to have, is actually a fear that ushers out of a right reverence for him and a right love for him. The fear of the Lord is a fear that honors God 
It is a fear that comes out of exposure to his excellence, to his greatness, to his holiness. Yet by faith dares to tread where angels will not walk. The fear of the Lord is the sort of fear that makes God's people eager to obey him, not because we're afraid God might drop a piano on our head or might cause our football team to lose. It is a fear that understands the gravity of who he is and loves him because it sees the bigness of God. The fear of the Lord holds us steadfast against other fears because we know that he is with us and that he loves us. It is a fear that believes God and trusts God. We must see this connection between loving God and fearing God because God makes it very clear in his word. He is not interested in acts of obedience that do not come from a heart of obedience. He tells the people who were living in Judah to close the doors to the temple, to stop offering sacrifices to him. He commanded sacrifices. Why would he say that? Well, it's because they did not come with the right heart. They came because God required them to, not because they loved him. God means for us to have hearts of obedience that produce acts of obedience. The greatest command of the Lord is a command to love him. To love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is why it's impossible to say that you fear the Lord if you do not love the Lord, and why it is equally impossible to say that you love the Lord if you do not fear the Lord. Love for God produces this sort of reverent awe for him because it sees him in his amazing beauty. It sees the danger his holiness poses to us, and it stands awestruck that that God would have mercy and grace on us such as he does. It is when we see the holiness of God and our unholiness that the grace of God really realizes its full depth and meaning and produces love in us like no other. My, my uncle was a Marine in Desert Storm. We have some letters that he wrote back and forth with our family, uh, one of which he mentions he's talking about a baby, and that baby was me. So it's always been kind of strange to think that he was about to go into battle and he's thinking about what's going on back at home and even mentioned me even though he didn't know my name at that point. My, my uncle is what I would call a dangerous man. He volunteered to be in the first forces that pushed into Kuwait. He's seen action. He's faced danger. He lost friends. But even though he's what I would call a dangerous man, I have never felt afraid of him because I know he loves me. He has always commanded my respect ever since I was a little child, but I have never doubted that I was safe with him. Maybe that can give you a sense of the sort of fear of the Lord that the Bible has in mind when it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when Moses tells the people that they are to learn what he is going to teach them so that they may fear God. God is not tame, but he is good. And those who love him and who fear him are safe with him. Moses called Israel to learn what he had to teach them about God because he knew that the better they knew God, the deeper they plunged into who God is, the more they would see the depth of his holiness, the more they would love him, and the greater they would fear him. 
It's when we lose sight of this fear of the Lord, when we lose sight of his great glory, that our love for him grows strangely cold and the allure of the world seems stronger. So we must press into the Lord to learn from him that we may do what he commands us to do, but also that we might have a right fear and a right love for him the way we're called to do. Third, we're called to learn so that we may thrive. Learn that you may thrive. God is not a means to greater blessings. He's not a vending machine. But the Bible does make it clear that God richly blesses those who draw near to him. In verse 1, Moses tells the people that he is teaching them the commandment of the Lord, the statutes and the rules, and so that they may do them in the land they are going over to possess it. And it's kind of weird that he gives a location here, right? I mean, shouldn't they do this wherever they are? Well, when we consider, so, so the question is, why would he include that? Well, it makes sense when we consider what the land was meant to represent. Now, we studied the book of Joshua for a while. When we studied the book of Joshua, we saw that that book was all about how God kept his promises. It was God's faithfulness in spite of people's unfaithfulness. All those meticulous boundary markers that we made our way through were evidence to us that God keeps his word. He fulfilled his covenant to his people and their fathers. The land of Canaan represented the blessing of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and the generations after. Moses tells the people that they are to keep the commands that he is teaching them to do them in the land because this is part of the covenant God had made with them. The land was a blessing from God's great covenant. Now, a covenant is not a word we should just throw around. A covenant is a binding agreement that brings two parties together. Unlike a contract, a covenant is other-oriented. It's about a relationship between those two parties. When a, when a husband and wife come together and are married, we, call that, we don't call that a marriage contract. We call it a covenant because promises are made, giving to the other. Not, you give me this, and I'll give you this, and if you don't give me this, we'll cut it off. No, it's, I give myself to you. And the other person says, I give myself to you. And together, the two become one. It's a beautiful depiction of a deeper relationship. It's not about what you get from your husband or wife. It's about what you give. The covenant God made with Israel was something he made of his own free will to their benefit. Israel couldn't offer him anything. He richly poured out his love on them, and it was shown in the covenant. And the marker of that was the land. God took Israel out of Egypt. He took them out to be his people and to be their God. He redeemed them. He called them out to be holy as he himself is holy. His commands given in the law were meant to set the standard of holiness forward. And the goal of these commands was to make Israel flourish in the land of promise with God. That is what made it so special. The purpose of the law was never to burden Israel. It was to bless them and make them thrive. In verse 3, Moses says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Arbitrary rules and commands are hard to follow. In fact, they feel like they're baiting us to go and break them. I expect Titus and Rebecca 
to obey me without questioning. But I also try to make sure when I can that they understand that when I tell them to do something, it's for their good. When I can, I try to explain to them why they need to listen to me. As he begins teaching the nation the commands of the Lord, we see Moses explaining to them why these commands are need to be followed. Because they are for their good. They are not meant to be a burden on them. They are meant to make them thrive in a land with God. Moses mentions three blessings here. First, he says, listen and be careful to do these commands so that it may go well with you. Their parents, the parents of this generation, had not listened to the commandments of the Lord, and they had died in the wilderness. So as God is here pouring out his blessings on this new generation, he means for them to understand that if they act the way their parents did, they will end up just like them. They will not thrive. They will die. If, on the other hand, they are careful to listen to God and to follow his commands, He tells them that they will enjoy the blessings of the Lord in full degree. Second, he tells them to listen so that they may multiply. Now, the word here is the same that God used when he blessed his creation and told his his creatures to multiply and fill the earth. This was a command and a blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. Now, Now, God... Here, we see him blessing them in the same way through this command, telling them that if they will be careful to listen and commit themselves to obedience and his commands, he will multiply them in the land that he is giving them. So in a sense, we're seeing God working here to reverse the curse of Adam and Eve's rebellion since they had disobeyed God and they had ushered death into the world. Now we see him reversing that, giving us an idea of God's priority, taking a rebellious people and redeeming them out and setting them in a land to receive blessing. It's it's a reversal of the curse. The third blessing Moses tells the people about why they need to commit themselves to this is by he references the goodness of the land that God had already prepared for them. God was giving the people a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning that it was a place for them to thrive and enjoy his good gifts. They weren't inheriting a barren wasteland. They were inheriting a land that was promised to their forefathers, that was was good, that was already ready to provide abundantly and richly for their needs. Like the Garden of Eden, the people of Israel were receiving a land that was fruitful and blessed, a place of God's favor that was ready to provide for them. If we go back to Joshua, you may remember that the commands God gave to the people were they were not to plant gardens when they first got there. They were to eat of the land as it was. Why? How could they do that? Because God had provided that for them. It was so that they would learn that whatever benefit they received in the land, it was never their own doing. It was always the blessing of God's grace on them. And so we see that here with the way Moses speaks about the goodness of the land. God chose the people out of all the nations of the earth. He blessed them and he made them a blessing just the same way as he had promised Abraham. And the law was meant to go with them to protect the people because in order to live with God in this promised land, they needed to live in a holy manner that was reflective of his holiness. That's what it meant for them to be the people of God. So we must not look at the commands of God as arbitrary or senseless. They always have a purpose. They are meant to make us thrive. 
the law was never meant to be an end in and of itself. It had a purpose in the redemptive work of God, which Christ has fulfilled for us. Since the law in the end exposes our human weakness and our inability to keep God's commands because of the hardness of our own hearts. Still, as we look at the law, as we hear God calling us to learn his commandments and to do them, we also need to see the loving heart behind those commands. The heart of God is to make his people thrive in a right relationship with him. And that brings us to our fourth reason we ought to learn. Learn so you may teach. Learn so you may teach. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, but James says, let not many of you become teachers, brothers. So that, I, I include myself in that. I'm not going to do that. Well, there's something deeper there. In verse 2, Moses tells the people how God commanded him to teach them so that they would keep all the commands of the Lord, his statutes and his commands. He also makes it clear that they were to teach this on from generation to generation so that they also might do it as, as they were commanded to do, so that the future generations would also fear and love the Lord, and so that they also might flourish in the blessings of God. He says that, you see the purpose clause, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. He kept, could have kept going there. Your son, son, son. By keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Now, we've already established that the commands of God are good. They are the way of life. They are given to us as a measure of God's love. They are meant to make us flourish in a right relationship with him. Parents, parents want the best for their kids. We do. It's our joy. It's our pleasure to provide for them. I love seeing my kids' faces light up when I hand them something, even something simple. It is a pleasure for me to get to do that. Parents are called to be teachers. They're called to raise their children up in the way that they should go. The greatest calling parents have is to teach their children about the Lord and instruct them in the way. We are not being faithful to the stewardship God has given us if we are not teaching the next, children, the, the next generation everything they need to face this world, but we are not teaching them to prioritize godliness. The greatest thing we can teach our children is to prioritize godliness. To do that, we need to be taking steps to equip ourselves in the way of godliness so that we are not merely conveying truths about God to our children, but we're actually showing them what it means to pursue God as our greatest treasure. That, that is a great responsibility. It takes time. It takes discipline. It takes effort. It takes having intentional conversations with our families at home. It takes reading the Bible with our families. It takes going to the throne of grace in prayer, teaching them how to pray. It, it takes being intentional to pursue God in our own lives so that we can lead our children along with us to do the same. It, it takes showing them that it is worth it to pursue God, to learn from Him, to devote ourselves to His commands, because there is no greater treasure in this world or the next than knowing God and being known by Him. That is the greatest thing. Friends, I, I have two questions for you from that expectation. One, are you equipping yourself to teach the next generation the way of godliness? Are you pursuing God? Second, are, are you actually teaching the next generation? Obviously, that is a question, especially for those of you who are or hope to be parents. 
But I want you to understand, this applies to everyone. If you're here this morning, God has provided you an opportunity to set an example for the next generation, for you to make an impact on those who are coming after you, to speak to them about the greatness of God and the glory of Christ. We can hear them right now. We've heard them in the service. I know, sometimes it can be loud and inconvenient. But frankly, friends, they, how are they going to know about the greatness of God if we don't tell them? They need to be there. They need to see that. And they need us to be willing to put the effort into showing them that. We have been stewarded here to grow in godliness, to grow in our understanding of God, to grow in our love for God, not just for our own relationship with Christ, but also for others. Friends, let us take that seriously. God has given us such a gift, such a calling to make his glory. No, I don't know if you know this, but when we're called to glorify God, you are not taking glory from somewhere else and giving it to God. That's not what it means to glorify God. To glorify God is to draw attention to him in his fullness. You cannot add to an eternal God, but you can draw attention to him. That is how you magnify the name of the Lord, by making the greatness of God known. That is our calling. So let us strive to learn and to grow in godliness so that we may meet his calling with faith and obedience. I heard a, a clip from Paul Washer earlier this week talking about how this has been so neglected in the church today. And I think he's right because it is so easy for men in our culture to step back and to forget, to, to consider ourselves a provider instead of a leader. A provision for your family is part of that, men. It is. That's a glorious calling. But at the end of the day, you're responsible to teach your children about the goodness of God. So are you equipping yourself in that way? And are you taking that and applying that to the lives of your families? We can all improve in that. Women, are you, are you wives, are you equipping your husband to do that as well? Not, not nagging, but encouraging, providing in that way. It's a team effort. God has given us a great calling. He's called us to learn. He's called us to learn his way so that we may do them. He's called us to learn his way so that we may fear him in a right way. He has called us to learn so that we might follow in him, so we might thrive and all, he has also called us to learn so that we may raise up the next generation. May God give us hearts to obey him, hearts to see him in his goodness, hearts that rush to this because it's worth it and it's good. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we, we stand on the cusp of one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. And Lord, all of, your, all of your word is blessed, but this is particularly tasteful and good and deep and, and nourishing. And Lord, our prayer this morning, even as we feel our own weakness, even as we recognize that as, as Moses was laying out these reasons for why we ought to pursue the law and pursue knowledge of you, uh, even as we see our own weakness in that, Lord, we commend ourselves to you and your grace. We commend ourselves to the obedience of Christ. We commend ourselves to his lordship over our lives. And we ask that by your power of your spirit, you would richly pour your grace out onto us so that we would love Christ the way he ought to be loved. And so that because of that, others would come to know and love Christ as well. 
Lord, help us to be faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our response is trust and obedience.